Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 30, When the Smoke Cleared. Last time, we finished up another two episodes about the color line and how Black Adventists coordinated together to push the General Conference to come to the table and deal with some of the discrimination that Black Adventists were facing in the church. The GC offered to set up separate conferences, which wasn't what Black Adventists wanted, but hey, it's better than nothing, right? In this episode, we're going to deal with the aftermath of the Second World War. When the smoke cleared, the Adventist church had a mess on their hands. As reports filtered in from the corners of their religious empire, the receipts for all the damage done to the church's hospitals, offices, schools, publishing houses, and sanitariums was estimated at $15 million, or about a quarter of a billion dollars today. That amount would be about one-eighth of the church's annual revenue today, but $15 million back then was two or three years worth of revenue back then for the General Conference. And that number was just a rough estimate of the property damage. It doesn't take into account the lost wages or damaged personal property of the church's workers. Now, in 1944, the church set up a rehabilitation fund. They knew the end of the war was coming. They knew that there was going to be a lot of damage to fix to their institutions. And they managed to scrape together $2.5 million uh, earmarked for getting people and institutions back on their feet. In order to get this money, church leaders had to raid other funds, like their emergency fund, for instance, And that was all that they managed to come up with at the time. They would need much, much more money. But at least they knew where they could get some of it. The war, following on the heels of the Great Depression, hadn't drained church funds, per se. It had only drained general conference funds. Local conferences and unions in North America were actually doing very well in 1944. W.E. Nelson, treasurer of the GC, didn't miss this fact. Treasurers are pretty sharp-eyed when it comes to money and who's accumulating it and who's not. Since 1928, Nelson told the General Conference Committee that tithe had grown by 87% for the General Conference. For conferences and unions, on the other hand, tithe had grown 171%. That is, in 1928, the local conference received about 40% more than the General Conference did By 1943, local conferences were receiving 100% more than the General Conference. The financial gap between North America and the rest of the world was growing. Now, if you're worried about restoring $15 million worth of property around the world, this is not a good thing. You didn't want this gap to continue growing. GC President James McElhaney worried that North American conferences and unions would just end up using their surplus to build more things at home and ignore the need around the world. He warned the committee, quote, the whole financial structure of the denomination might easily be wrecked by our planning in this period of inflated prosperity, end quote. Another GC leader called it artificial war prosperity. 
They recognized it for what it was. But when you're a local conference president or a local union president and suddenly you've got all this money and you know that there are schools or churches in your territory that need a lot of help, human instinct is to spend it, whether it's artificial prosperity or not, right? We're not really great as human beings at saving our money, about planning for for the long term, you know, all of those things. Even if it's a bubble, we're going to we're going to ride it until it pops. So that worried the general conference. Church leaders, therefore, passed the offering plate among the American conferences and unions and raised mm, nearly four hundred thousand dollars that way. They also found creative ways to bring in money. The three major publishing houses in the United States all did pretty well during the war financially, and they were asked to help rebuild their sister institutions around the world, both in terms of money and in terms of personnel. So, for instance, the Southern Publishing Association dutifully sent $30,000 to rebuild their sister institution in France. It must have felt like the late 1800s all over again, right? When... when Adventist institutions in North America were building sister institutions around the world. Sanitariums were building sanitariums. Publishing houses were building and staffing publishing houses. And here we are, like 60, 70 years later, doing the same thing all over again. Now, the General Conference did many other things as well. Right off the bat, $50,000 was sent to dozens of church workers for lost wages and property. Hundreds of thousands of dollars would follow after that. Church leaders in Norway estimated that at best only $75,000 would be needed to repair their churches. So the General Conference gave them $30,000. $60,000 was sent to Korea. Another $15,000 was sent to the China and Far Eastern divisions to help people rebuild their libraries at some of these institutions. $120,000 was sent to the Philippines to rebuild their publishing house. Another $125,000 was sent to rebuild Signs of the Times in China. $100,000 was sent to buy war surplus items for church institutions in Shanghai, like hospital beds. An academy, four homes, and other buildings in Shanghai needed another $30,000. Nearly half a million dollars was sent to the Southern European Division, which included $100,000 for the restoration of personal losses of workers, that's what they called it, throughout the division. And that was in addition to the $6,000, roughly $86,000 today, to buy shoes for members there. That's right. In today's dollars, $86,000 worth of shoes. The Adventist Church was spreading a staggering amount of money around in the post-war years. And what I described wasn't even the majority of it, wasn't even the half of it. And yet money wasn't seen as the church's biggest problem. The General Conference Treasurer admitted that the biggest problem actually was finding enough people to go back into the world field. Now, when I read that statement, I was surprised. I mean, so many missionaries have been returned home. Isn't the solution just to send them back out again? But I had forgotten how these foreign missionaries had come to rely upon local believers. And many of these believers have been devastated by the war. Why else would the church need to spend so much money buying shoes for people? Some had been killed, or they quietly walked away from the church, perhaps. Or what I suspect was rather common, they went out and found jobs in order to feed their families. In the case of the Malayan Union mission, the GC voted to give each employee's family $200, 
plus $50 for each dependent child. And to those who live through COVID-19 in certain countries, doesn't that sound like a stimulus check? To those Japanese Avenists who were unjustly imprisoned in American camps at the start of the war, the GC also agreed to send aid and help them to find jobs and homes and rebuild their lives again. The GC also sent $500,000 to buy food and clothing for members in Europe and Asia. Buildings could be rebuilt in a year or two or ten, but there was a sense of urgency with people. If you don't take care of your people right now, you might lose them forever. There's, there comes this time in a church's life, whether we're talking about a local congregation or a denomination, where the rubber meets the road, where it all comes down to how you handle this one situation. You can talk theology all you want, but if your church members are near starvation or they're walking around barefoot and you do nothing to help them, then none of that theology, practically speaking, matters in that moment. This was one of those moments, and the church recognized it. Albert Olson, Southern European Division president, shared some stories. He said in Poland he had met a Russian doctor, and so Olson asked the Russian doctor about the fate of Adventists under Stalin at the present. The Russian doctor's report best captures the nature of the news beginning to pour into the general conference. Quote, nearly all the older workers are thought to be dead, and some having died in concentration camps, end quote. But, but, the Russian doctor added, quote, where formerly there was difficulty in meeting for worship, now there is liberty. The message can be preached, but there are so few workers. Their greatest hardship is that they have no Bibles, no books, no papers, no tracts, end quote. That's been a story of these war years, hasn't it? unparalleled hardship alongside unparalleled success. The Russian leader visited the churches in the Baltic states in the summer of 1946, and he reported back to the General Conference that the 300 churches he became acquainted with there were of good cheer. At a time when the General Conference was having to buy shoes for people, was having to buy food for people, great joy and great pain were walking together hand in hand. Albert Olson arrived from Europe to lead out in a devotional for the General Conference Committee. He chose Matthew 9, 36 to 39 as his key text, which reads, but when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. After reading the text, Olson explained, quote, I believe that God desires we, his people, shall likewise be stirred by the needs and suffering and sorrow of the world as it is today. No one can travel in Europe today without having his heart stirred, for there is devastation, poverty, distress, and suffering on every hand. Inflation is causing anxiety. Money has lost its value. There is a great margin between wages and the cost of living, and so the people are in distress. They are also living in uneasiness and fear that instead of the peace conference resulting in a lasting peace, it will result in another war, a war more terrible than the one just ended. Thousands of families were torn asunder during the war and have not been able to get back together again. Thousands of children have been separated from their parents, many of them too young to remember who their parents were, or where they lived. At the present time, 
There is the expulsion movement. Many of the countries trying to solve their minority problem by expelling all foreigners. And so millions of people are on the move, truly scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. End quote. The General Conference wanted to do all that they could to enable local Avenus to be that shepherd for people, to help them pick up the pieces, to have hope again, to find work, to be able to afford food. Hundreds of millions of people around the world, particularly the very old and very young, were at risk of starvation in the aftermath of the Second World War. So the GC sent a man to Europe to help with food distribution. The American-occupied zone turned him down because an NGO had been created to bring food to people living in the American areas. There was another problem. The Danish government wouldn't allow the GC man to just buy a bunch of food and export it. They would only allow it to be exported to certain countries, and you had to get a permit to buy the food in the first place. Everyone was keeping a close eye on their food supply in these years. So this GC man went lobbying in the offices of government officials and finally got permission to buy 40 tons of butter, along with hundreds of tons of beans, peas, cheese, and other staples. If he had come a day later, the government told him it would have been too late. This food could only be sent to Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Austria, and so it was arranged. The GC man went to Sweden next and found the food commissioner, who asked, you are the people that keep Saturday, aren't you? Yes, said the GC man. The food commissioner told him that Avenus were respected and asked how much food he wanted. The GC man started doing the math in his head, but the commissioner interrupted him and told him that America and Britain had started leaning on Sweden for more food and that the GC man had come just in time because that afternoon in just a few hours, the Swedes were going to meet and send their surplus food to Britain and America and there would be nothing left for him. The GC man asked for 300 tons of food worth about $100,000 in the U.S. The food commissioner smiled and said, fill out an application. This food would be sent to the American and British zones of Germany. Next, he wanted to go to Czechoslovakia, but the airplane seats were booked in advance for months. So he visited some Czech official in Sweden, my guess is a consul, and that official got him diplomatic credentials and a plane seat the next day. He went on to Poland as well. In the Danzig area, there wasn't a building left standing. Thousands of people lived among the ruins. Half a million people in Warsaw were doing the same thing. They shuffled around with their heads, always looking down at their feet, at the ground, the GC man reported. At best, they were getting a thousand calories of food per day. The GC man met with the president of Poland and secured his blessing to bring more aid workers into Poland because you just couldn't send more bodies into these spaces, more people who needed to be fed and housed and cared for, not when, not when native Poles and others were living among the ruins. Every single person who came into the country needed to be accounted for, needed to have some kind of value. So the fact that this general conference man could could secure the blessing of the president to bring in a few more aid workers was marvelous. Finally, it was time to get a military permit to head to Germany. The GC man found half of the Avenus publishing house in Hamburg destroyed. Nevertheless, in the other half of the building, he found 130 employees 
with swollen feet and hands, struggling to get much work done because even though they were in the British zone, the British occupied zone, they too only got about a thousand calories a day. So they were finding it hard to concentrate, finding it hard to do hard manual labor. And they just kind of chipped away at it and did what they could. The week before, some of those workers had asked their leader there, quote, is the general conference going to do something for us? End quote. Their leader had told them, don't worry, the general conference will remember us. When the GC man showed up a week later, the workers there wept for joy. With the breakdown of any postal system in Germany and in many of these other countries, the evangelical church in Germany handled food shipments, promising that whatever food the general conference arranged would reach its destination in Germany. But before the GC man left, he had a convoy of food on its way to Vienna, to Linz, to Salzburg, to Budapest, to Poland, and to Prague. To Avenus not in major cities, they arranged 500,000 packages of food, each with a bar of soap, two pounds of butter, two pounds of cheese, malt syrup, peas, beans, and barley. These would be mailed directly to conference offices so that corrupt or hungry government officials don't have much of an opportunity to steal this valuable food. Now, I think that one story is worth telling at length because it shows that money wasn't the solution to great humanitarian problems. I mean, no doubt that man was not going to be buying all that food without money. But you also have to have boots on the ground. You have to spend time with bureaucrats. You have to get your hands dirty. These post-war years were really a desperate, inspiring time where Adventists from around the world looked after one another. In India, believers made clothes for their brothers and sisters in Burma, modern Myanmar. Of course, this doesn't mean that Adventists forgot the vast majority of non-Adventists out there who were suffering. The Indian believers also made clothes and gave them to the Red Cross to distribute to anyone who needed it. But there was a realization that we owe our first effort to those people who most rely upon us, who have sacrificed for us, who have served alongside us. Albert Olson, as president of the Southern European Division, had seen the shadow of doubt in the aftermath of the war. He came back and reported that people blamed God. Others just gave up on him for allowing this horrible war to happen. But as if opening Pandora's jar, Olson also saw a renewed interest in religious practice. This return to familiar traditions brought a sense of stability to those who lived through the chaos and cruelty of war. For Adventists, the 1946 General Conference session was a much-needed sense of normalcy. Laura Clement, editor of the Youth's Instructor, the church's, uh, well, like youth magazine, wrote the opening article of the 1946 General Conference session and just seemed to delight in the most ordinary details. From her pen, for instance, we learn how long it took Bashir Hasso to fly in from Cairo. The answer is two days. From her pen, we learn that Mr. Hasso has a son graduating from Emmanuel Missionary College. From her pen, we learn that Mr. and Mrs. McClements were homesick for Nigeria. From her pen, we learn that F.M. Wilcox walks into the room. I mean, that's, that's what she tells us. Oh, hey, F.M. Wilcox walks in. He starts talking to a couple of people. Uh, from her pen, Laura Clements tells us how she looks out her office window to see another wave of Avenus showing up for the session. From her pen, we learn about the colored cards that grant delegates access to different dining rooms. Even though Laura was over 50, 
She's like this rookie detective thinking every detail is important. At one point, she wrote this, quote, Afternoon! The Sligo Church lawn is literally full of desks, tables, typewriters, chairs, boxes, cupboards, and filing cases. Each one is packed full of supplies, and the trucks are bringing more. Claude Connard, statistical secretary of the General Conference and business manager of this General Conference, stands in the middle of all the confusion, coat off, hat pushed back, paper and pencil in hand. He is checking everything by number and directing a dozen perspiring young men where to take each item, end quote. Okay, look, that's a, that's a long quote for a minor point, but I just, I really wanted it to stick. After years of war and chaos, a little boring isn't bad. A little routine isn't bad. Reading Laura Clement's opening article, I, I would imagine just feels comforting to those who are tired of the big conversations about armies and starvation and rationing and who lost whom in their family to the war. And, and just, I, I just can only imagine those people would be happy to hear about desks and hats and chairs because those things represent life as it should be. Life as they remembered it. Life before the shadow came. President McElhaney stood up on the opening night of the session and gave something like a State of the Church address. It was really one of the most transparent, open-hearted talks I've read from one of these 20th century General Conference presidents. It begins by setting the stage, of course. He said his administration has been a war administration. Quote, we have seen hundreds of our churches destroyed. Local and union conferences have been disorganized. Whole divisional organizations have been wiped out. Many of our workers have perished or disappeared. Scores have been thrown into internment or concentration camps, some to die of starvation or disease, end quote. But what comes through to me in this address, and I should say this address is not just, it's not just that tone. I mean, it has all the things you would expect from a general conference president's address, hope in the future, what the world really needs is Jesus. We need to recommit ourselves to our, our Adventist teachings and to Ellen White. Okay, it has all of that stuff you, you would expect a general conference president to say at a general conference session. I mean, it's just, you know, that stuff's there. I'm not trying to overlook it. Just know that it's there. But what I'm trying to say is what really comes through to me in the cracks between all of the normal Adventist general conference president stuff is what I think is McElhaney's own sense of weariness and loneliness. It's common, for instance, for a general conference president to acknowledge his predecessors who are in attendance or maybe in uh, not in attendance at a general conference session. It's a show of respect. But maybe I'm wrong here, but I, I, I see a little more in this gesture during this general conference session than perhaps in times past. McElhaney says he hoped that his immediate predecessor, Charles Watson, could be there, but Watson was in poor health back in Australia. He then turns to William Spicy Spicer, who was there, and says, quote, We greatly cherish his counsel. His unfailing courage is always an inspiration that cheers the brethren on. End quote. And after acknowledging these two men, he adds, Quote, these two brethren are the only men now living who have in the past borne the responsibilities of general conference leadership, end quote. But McElhaney wasn't finished yet. Quote, in these days of increasing perplexities and the grave perils surrounding us, 
we learn to value the counsel of such men. As a precious gift, the Lord has given to some the ability to serve the cause as wise counselors. Thank God for them. I wish with all my heart we had a larger number of them. It is with deep concern that I see the passing of the older men of experience. End quote. Now, McElhaney would be reelected in 1946 for a final term, but he would later reflect on his time as General Conference president as something that drained him. And there were only two people in all the world who could appreciate the burden he carried. And McElhaney couldn't be sure either of them would live on to see the next session. Although Watson, the one with the poorest health at the moment, would actually outlive them all. What I think is happening here is that the war years have put a lot on McElhaney's shoulders. And he's conscious of the lack of support that he has out there, right? Only two people really understand what it's like. And one of them's in Australia and not doing well. And the other one, Spicer, is obviously a bit up there in age. The old guard is dying. The old guard, by the way, is always dying. And McElhaney worries for the future of an Adventist church that is severed from its past. F.M. Wilcox, who was editor of the Review for 33 years, was nearing his end as well. Spicer was nearing his. W.W. Prescott had died. So did Flora Plummer, the woman who served as interim president of the Iowa Conference until she left to make her greatest contribution in the Sabbath School Department at the General Conference. She had put 36 years in there. And another General Conference employee took the time to say that no other department had been run as well as hers. So the question remained, who would rise up and take their places? Who would replace those missionaries and those believers in their native countries who lost their lives in the war? I think this is something maybe many church leaders who are coming out of COVID might have a, a little bit of an inkling of, especially at the local church level where, you know, if you're an elder or a pastor or somebody, you've, you've probably felt pretty alone this last year because you couldn't see people you didn't have committees and, and whatever other organizational structures you had of support to, to plan, to, uh, to accomplish whatever mission you, your church has, right? So I think here with the, with the structures of the church so hampered, so annihilated, with the restrictions on travel, all these things that happened in World War II, the rationing of resources, McElhaney's coming out of this feeling alone, and the only people who could understand that aren't doing so well themselves— and, and great people, the people he had grown up admiring, the people who had put in decades of work are, 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 are dying at this point or almost there. And he's worried about the future of this church. Like who's the, the, the flag that, or maybe we should say the torch that has been being carried for so long. It, it, it seems like the hands that have been holding it are, are falling in that, in the torch itself, almost as if it's in slow motion is, is falling to the ground. And McElhaney's looking around saying, is there nobody left to pick this up? Is there nobody left to replace F.M. Wilcox or W.W. Prescott or Flora Plummer or, or me? Is there nobody left in the Adventist church to, to step up at this time, at this time when we need people the most? McElhaney was tired. It wore him out. And he seemed in 1946, from the way he talked, like he realized his time might be 
over. More than this, he seemed concerned for the future of Adventism after the war. Now, as I said, his talk had many of the bright colors of optimism that every president wants to impart, wants to inspire or instill. But it also had those flecks of melancholy that I just, I don't think we see in other presidential addresses. Quote, seizing what may be my last opportunity, I feel constrained to say that in addition to those things mentioned above, we stand, as it were, at the parting of ways. What we have done, what we have seen, what we are, will in no degree suffice for the future. If we continue as we are in complacently resting upon past achievements, we shall fail completely. We as leaders need something. Our ministry needs something. Our churches need something. Unless we discover what that need is and learn to possess it, we are lost Our vocabularies need to be changed. Instead of preening ourselves over our financial successes and living on the husks of human achievements, we need to realize that we stand on the brink of eternity with a doomed and dying world about us. We should learn to talk of those things that really matter. We need to explore the realms of spiritual power to draw on the resources of omnipotence. We need so constantly to live in the presence of God that we shall be endued with his mighty power. Seventh-day Adventist should be a rebuke to the world. Instead of living like the world and finding our joys in the world, we should set an example to the world in godly living. End quote. I would love to go back in time and sit down with James McElhaney and talk about this statement. He's struggling to find the right words to size up the situation. He says we need to change as a church. He says we need a new vocabulary. He says that local churches and their leaders need something. He says that Adventists can't keep patting themselves on the back for what they did in the past, living, as he said, on the husks of human achievements. He ultimately brings it all back around to the familiar refrain that Adventists need to reject worldliness. Okay. But I wonder if there was more that could have been said, if only he had found the right words, because he left a lot of words on the table there, didn't he? What new vocabularies do we need? What kind of change exactly? In what ways is the past not able to carry us into the future? He doesn't tell us. He wants, I believe, to hold on to old Adventism. At one point, he says that he doesn't know an Adventist with spiritual power who doesn't believe Ellen White was a prophet. He didn't like many of the ways the world was changing, but he also knew the church had to change. But how? The organized church had reached the pinnacle of its effectiveness in these years. It was moving hundreds of tons of food and millions of dollars around the world to literally prevent thousands of Adventist members and others from starving. This was a triumph of the organizational vision of church bureaucracy. Scores of conferences and unions and divisions had been shut down, but the church still functioned and it functioned well. A purely congregational church model wouldn't have been able to move this fast or do this much to help its members in the post-war years around the world. Adventist leadership could look back 90 years to the great debate in the 1850s over whether church organization would lead to Adventists becoming spiritual Babylon, and they could laugh because they stood vindicated. All of that organization had paid off. Why then was McElhaney so melancholy about the future? 
there was, in the end, a hope that he nurtured. You see, in the aftermath of the war, the London County Council published color-coded maps of 117 square miles of the London region, showing every single damaged or destroyed building. In fact, it showed every building, but it color-coded those that were damaged or destroyed. Now, the color black meant that the building was totally obliterated. Red and purple meant that it was damaged and probably not able to be repaired. It showed where every V-1 and V-2 rocket landed, which were among the 20,000 bombs that fell on the city. Most buildings were some kind of color, whereas many no doubt saw loss represented by those colors. They lost their homes, their valuables, maybe even loved ones. Others saw opportunity. In 2015, a British reporter studied the difference between the modern maps of London and those after the war, and he wrote, quote, Once you start looking around, it's astonishing how often a bomb site of 1940 is the building site of 2015. End quote. What he meant was that the damage and destruction of over 100,000 buildings in London became an opportunity to modernize the city. You see, with a bunch of historic buildings around, it can be hard for a city to make the tough decision to reroute a road and knock down a group of apartment buildings or something. Even if that decision makes perfect sense from the standpoint of uh, traffic flow or or business, or even if, even if it's in the best interest of the people who live there, it's hard. It's hard to go door to door and say, hey, can we knock down your apartment building? We got to find some place for you to live, right? But when the city's all torn up, you have your chance. And McElhaney realized that this was a good time for Avenus to reorganize too, even if he didn't know exactly what should happen. Boundaries between divisions and conferences should be adjusted. Now is the time to do it, he said. But the real organization, the real reorganization needs to happen in the Avenus heart, he said. Quote, where the ravages of war have brought depression and discouragement, bitterness and alienation, all those things must be healed and wiped away. One of the post-war problems that will face the people of all nations is the spirit of extreme nationalism, which is perhaps one of the consequences of a world war. But with the people of God scattered throughout all nations of earth, there must be continually a spirit of unity. The hearts of men of all nations and races must be drawn together in common love for one another and unity of the faith. End quote. McElhaney is getting at the crux of the matter for many people. How do I love my German neighbor? How do I love my Japanese neighbor? How do I love my American neighbor? Right? Just last week they were trying to kill me and now you want to give me a stack of books and tell me to go door to door in that territory and tell them about the love of Jesus? Because of them I don't have shoes? Because of them I find it hard to get food? How am I supposed to go there and, and, and tell them that God loves them and wants them to be saved? How do I get over my own depression and everything that's been taken from me? McElhaney realized we, we've got to heal the depression and the discouragement. We've got to fix this so prejudice doesn't take root in the hearts of our people or even as he says this the, the spirit of extreme nationalism right like we won the war my people are the best people right he's, he's warning against that maybe he's looking at america on that one maybe he's looking at england and france on that one be careful not to be so proud that you won this war that that you you, you get you swell up with this spirit of pride that will be a barrier 
that prevents you from helping the people who need the love of Jesus right now, addressing the renovation or the reorganization of the Adventist heart was the first order of business in rebuilding the Adventist church when the smoke cleared. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.